Well, good morning again. I'm going to open us up with a word of prayer. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for this day that you have made. That we rejoice and are glad in it. Thank you for this, this, uh, this sermon series entitled Justice, where we get to uh, grow in our capacity to bear your image well as it relates to justice here on earth. And may we participate well in seeing your will in heaven done here on earth. I pray that you bless this conversation, allow it to be fruitful such that we are comforted as needed and disturbed as needed, as through scripture you do both. Uh, we thank you, Lord, in advance for our time. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I am joined today, which, by the way, my name is Paul, and privileged to serve as pastor of Victory Church of Charlottesville, where we exist to see people reconciled to God and to each other. And as referenced in my prayer, we've been in a sermon series entitled Justice, and I want to jump into our conversation today with uh, Dr. Brackney, who I am so excited to have with us today. She's our chief of police here in Charlottesville. And if you haven't had a chance to read her bio, I'm going to do that for all of us today and, and then jump in. And, and I hope that you'll engage by asking questions in the Facebook thread. Uh, prior to her appointment as the chief of police for Charlottesville, Virginia, Dr. Rochelle M. Brackney retired as a 30-year veteran from the Pittsburgh Bureau of Police and served as the former chief, chief of police of the George Washington University. During her tenure as a law enforcement professional, she's been responsible for overseeing critical operations to include administration, parole operations, and investigations. Uh, and, and most notably, she was the first African-American female nationally to oversee a special operations division, which included SWAT, mounted patrol, accident investigation, hostage negotiations, river rescue, traffic and the bomb squad. Dr. Brackney is a recognized expert in the areas of harm reduction, procedural and restorative justice practices and community police relations. Due to her work in these areas, Dr. Brackney was selected by the Department of Justice to address bias-based and hate crimes reporting challenges in the nation. In addition, she was selected by the Divided Community Project to join their steering committee and the Vera Institute for Justice to serve on their national steering committee for policing programs. Additionally, as a result of her work in social and racial justice, Dr. Brackney was granted a fellowship to Carnegie Mellon, Carnegie Mellon University, University's Institute for Politics, excuse me, and Strategy, where she specializes in the influence of race on politics and policy. Dr. Brackney earned a bachelor's and master's degrees from Carnegie Mellon University and a PhD from Robert Morris University. Additionally, she has earned numerous professional certifications to include the Command Institute for Police Executives and the Police Executive Research Forum. Dr. Brackney is a graduate of the FBI National Academy in Quantico, Virginia, the United States Secret Service Dignitary Protection Course in Washington, DC, Redstone Arsenal Bomb School for Managers in Huntsville, Alabama, and Leadership Pittsburgh. And it is my honor, Dr. Brackney, to have you join us today. Thank you for being here. Thank you, I appreciate you having me. Absolutely. So I thought we'd open up our our 30 minutes together, which I could already feel going so quickly with, uh, you're just telling us more about yourself. So behind uh, the bio, behind the resume, I think sometimes what we forget and behind the uniform, as I like to say, is I'm just, uh, you know, a black girl from the inner city, grew up poor, grew up one of six kids, um, literally lived in a half a house kind of a place. Um, I'm not ashamed to tell people we grew up on public assistance, old school, food stamp coupons out of a book, um, not you know access cards or EBT. Um, 
you know, is a dedicated mom, a doting mom of a, a 26 year old, an amazing husband. Um, but basically who I am is, you know, I'm just this girl from the hood who God just has led to these places and spaces. So great. Now you're, you're I think I've read that your uh, PhD was from Robert Morris University. And as I understand it, I had a chance to read through it a bit. Your dissertation was on community violence and its exposure uh, on the lives of African-American, uh, on the lives of African-American adolescent males. Can you talk a little bit, maybe starting there about what you learned in that regard? So what I found is that we often criminalize behaviors um, in black and brown communities, particularly poor communities um, who typically find ways around um, economies and structural systems in which they've been left out of. And that we have um, individuals who are extremely resilient um, as I call them, they were resistant. Um, and then some were just resigned to the circumstances that they found themselves in, not being able to see any pathway forward or any agency in which they could find themselves there. Um, and this came about of a variety of exposures to, to community violence. That included police encounters, negative police encounters, as well as hearing shots fired in the community, um, being arrested, um, detained, being searched differently, being handcuffed. Um, and might, how might they respond to those type of incidents? And what was their strategy for being successful in that system? Um, and things that we were calling maladaptive throughout society was something that was extremely adaptive um, for them to survive the communities and the structural inequities that we have actually forced young adults to figure out how to navigate at a very early age. You know, it's, it's, it's rare, at least in my exposure and experience, Dr. Brackney, that that background and level of, of expertise and knowledge can be brought into practice. And, and no doubt there's, there's always been a lot going on, but certainly in the headlines now we're seeing as a country so much going on, uh, whether it's been Breonna Taylor, uh, George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, and, and, and just Friday night in Atlanta, Rashard Brooks. Um, and here in Charlottesville, even yesterday, we had a defund the police uh, uh, block party. Um, so much to speak to, and you can start wherever you'd like, but I want to hear how, and this is kind of a two-part question, again, start where you like and go where you like with it, but what, how are you experiencing it, and, and in what ways does your faith intersect with how you are experiencing it, personally, professionally, all of the above? So I know that's a loaded <laughs> stat question, I thought we Remember, we, we have 30 minutes, right? That's right, I um, know. Yeah. So the key to all of this literally is my faith. Um, as my husband and I have said, um, since we arrived here, we were led here. If we were not led here, we would probably be more physically exhausted than we are um, now, right, um, around these issues. And so yesterday was a, another block party, another rally, another march um, in which our department and myself have been navigating these um, in the Charlottesville area now for three straight weeks. Um, so they are exhausting and they've gone without incident. And part of it is um, I can't blame, I can't take any credit except to say, as we say all the time, but God, I mean, but God, as we pray for these communities every time that we go out there. And part of that prayer is also for those officers um, to have a heart of flesh, that they can see the real pain that's going on in these communities and that they allow that pain to really be heard and to just step away from that and not become the focal points of the um, interactions and the interventions. Um, 
So that's the, the first part of how I'm navigating it. Um, the other one is, you know, is our go-to scripture. Someone sent me, um, reminding me the other day of Isaiah 1, 16 and 17, to wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of our sight and stop doing wrong. Learn to do right and seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless and plead the case of the widow. That is literally what the peacemakers who should have been the intention of law enforcement should be. That we need to be pleading the case of the, the offended, the depressed, um, and the oppressed. And we have to do that in a way that does not um, align with laws that um, are immoral or unjust. It cannot be enough for law enforcement professionals to say that we, we're just defending the laws, we're enforcing the laws. It is literally our voices that need to come out and say, these laws are inhumane, unethical, immoral, and we will not participate um, in those systems. You know, that's that, that, all of what you shared brings me back, Dr. Brackney, to childhood even. Um, and by the way, folks, send your questions in. I'll keep asking because I've got plenty all day, but we want to hear from you as well. Um, and I say that because I grew up in New York, uh, NYPD in the family, in our church, um, respected uh, individuals to this day, even friends. Um, and yet I learned from them the, the systemic issues that pervaded their departments and departments across the country. And I, and I thought about another scripture, Isaiah 1, 16 and 17 are, are some of my go-tos in, in, in terms of this conversation as well. And this one is uh, from Psalm 82 and 2 that says, you know, how long will you defend the unjust? Later in the Psalms 106 and 3, it says, blessed are those who act justly. Um, and I'm wondering if through your lens, you can talk about the ways, um, given your experiences and expertise in law enforcement, that we might defend the unjust, uh, unintentionally or intentionally, like how does that look? And then on the more strengths-based side of things, what might it look like for us to act justly? All right, so the, the, the nerd in me and the geek in me is writing down the questions at the exact same time so that I make sure that we address them. You know, um, oftentimes we defend the unjust, not even in systems, but even in our homes, right? Mm -hmm. When we know that our children or our family members have not um, lived up to our expectations or have done things that are, are immoral or, or illegal, the first thing we'll say um, is, wasn't my son in the classrooms when the teacher says, um, I, this occurred, our almost default is to say, oh, not my child, right? Um, that was not my experience growing up in the household. Um, if a teacher said that uh, we did something, my, my parents' default was, I believe you, they probably did. Um, but we do this as part of our human nature, right? And um, to wanna to protect those, those individuals who are near and dear to us. And we also do it because we don't wanna risk alienating um, our loved ones. So we defend them oftentimes, even when they behave unjustly and we don't hold them accountable. Within the law enforcement profession, there's always been this culture or this, this belief that if you, um, you didn't defend them, you would not have backup, you, that someone would leave you on a call and you were likely to be injured or hurt um, and, and that these same persons you depended on for your life. So that they would defend these behaviors. Um, 
But also too, so for me from very early on, I understood that I could not lead a life in which I defended that. Um, that literally my, my carnal life would just um, sacrifice my moral life, my soul. And I couldn't compromise the two of those. You can justly work in this field, um, pushing back against those immoral and illegal behaviors of our, of our profession and, and still survive it. Understanding that um, I'm not willing to sacrifice my soul to gain something within that profession. So, and I've always just relied on the protections. You know, I've said many a times, but God, um, when I faced, you know, guns in my face, riots inside prisons, um, physical fights, um, but God was there to protect me. Um, so I didn't have to worry about backup from man. I had backup from above. Yeah, that's good. That's so good. Michelle Johnson just wrote a question. Um, she says, can you, and this is going back, I think, to a couple of uh, iterations ago, but she's asking if you could elaborate on some of the laws that you believe are unjust. So absolutely. So we criminalize, or we've, and we can talk about the defunding concept, right? Because we talked about that. We um, in society have decided the most expedient, efficient, barbaric way, um, shout out to my husband um, in his books, the barbaric way in which we um, deal with our societal ills is to criminalize them. So for instance, um, loitering. Typically you have a loitering law in the inner city, poor communities where they lack resources, after school activities and places for our young adults to go. So we don't fund those kind of places. So we criminalize when they're hanging out on the corners. They don't want to be inside like everybody else. And we want them out of sight. Society wants them out of sight. They don't want to deal with our young black men, our young black women. So we criminalize what is normal adolescent behavior, socializing and hanging out. So I have fought loitering laws um, in Pittsburgh for as long as I can remember, we don't have them here. We criminalize um, being unsheltered or homeless. Mm. So we don't want them. It's an affront to have somebody who's unsheltered in front of your storefront um, mm. because somehow it detracts from it. We do this at churches. We will step over our homeless and unsheltered personnel persons to go into church. And then we call a security person that we hire to ask them to move. Um, mm. We criminalize um, being... Um, in a mental health crisis. So we have defunded all of those. And when you're feeling suicidal, we dial, dial 911 and send a police officer there to address that issue whose resources are a gun, a taser, a impact weapon and OC spray. And when you're in a mental health crisis, really, do you need to have those kind of triggers to agitate? But that's what we criminalize and not push back against mm. pretty frequently. And there just seems to be so much nuance and layers to 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 all of it. It's just, it's woven in right to so many parts of the fabric, if you will. Nathan Swanson writes in and says, "Thanks for taking your time to speak with us um, today." And and Mia Woods asks, and this is again speaking to the nuance of your role and responsibility. How do you enforce laws in real time, and then also advocate for change and lead a force of officers all at once? Like, how does what does that look like for you? Yeah, and, and still have time to eat or sleep or, or get a run yeah. in or something, right? Um, so it is extremely, it is a delicate balance. 
um, as you're trying to manage what I always call competing priorities. Um, it is juggling glass balls. When people talk about juggling balls, these are glass balls in which one, you can't afford, like you said, to drop this ball um, because it comes shattering down and the impact of it. So um, the first thing that I do at all times when I'm looking at this, and this also goes to my go-to scripture, um, is Psalm 78, 72. And it says, and David shepherded them with integrity of heart and with skillful hands, he led them. Mm. That to me means exactly that that I need to really rely on and seek some solace and peace as to what um, God is leading me to do. So when is that moment that I advocate? When is the time when it's most advantageous to advocate? And right now, um, reform is being amplified. So that's how I do it, right? That um, if nothing else, this is the, the perfect time to guilt your white, privileged, fragile counterparts, yeah. if nothing else to say, listen, you have agency, you have resources, you can then help amplify my voice so that I'm not doing it as a solo act. Um, this is really a time for community and community policing in a real and genuine sense. That's, uh, wow. Some, somebody following up on that, Dr. Brackney. Well, several are, and I'm trying to see what might tie into that more than others and keep it somewhat of a linear convo here. But um, somebody's asking a demographic question. I'll go there first, because you probably can say that really quickly. The racial makeup of our police force here in Charlottesville, what does that look like? Um, it is pretty um, dismal. Um, it is extremely dismal. Um, I can say that I am the only minority, only black female um, currently on the police department. Um, we are recruiting more, but here's the interesting um, dichotomy about when we ask about diversity. In my minority communities, originally, when I first started in policing more than three and a half decades, my grandmother um, was so proud that this young, um, black woman was going into policing. As a matter of fact, she was like, that's my granddaughter. She's a police officer. You know, you hit that, oh, real hard mm -hmm. in black community, right? That is not the same response now. Now, typically from black community, we hear you're a snitch, you're, you're working for the man, um, mm -hmm. traitor, um, Uncle Tom, etc. So it is really difficult to recruit um, those persons who would want to come into a system in which they then have to go into their own communities again and be isolated. Mm -hmm. So we have a responsibility that if we want the community and the police department to be reflective, then we have to support when those persons are willing to enter into those spaces. And we often don't do that um, at all. And then on the exact same side, um, I've done interviews, I've been called more affirmative action quota hire, um, including for this position that I am currently in, where someone said, of course you hire the black female um, who's fly by night in this industry, who has paper mill degrees um, and just happens to be a black female. Um, and my counterparts never step up and say, you know what? Um, she is probably the most qualified individual you could have coming into this space but we don't amplify or support um, diversity. We just claim we want it. And then when we don't meet that standard, there's always then the finger pointing as to why that does not occur. 
Mm. But our, our diversity is pretty dismal. It's, it's reflective of the rest of the, the nation at about 85% white male, easily. And you're speaking so much to the, again, the layers associated with reform. I mean, in, my, in the back of my mind, that was a big question I had coming in is what does it look like? And I think you're uh, unpacking for us or at least peeling back some of the layers of what that looks like and how difficult it can be um, to, to enact it. Thank you, Kurt Scott, for that, that question. There's a question specific to yesterday's um, uh, defund the police block party from Matthew Gilligan. Again, many decisions being made. Uh, and his question is, who invited the state troopers into the city yesterday and why were they brought in? So um, to Matthew Gilligan, who, um, thank you, Matthew emails me constantly um, and hits me up. Any of our planning is always the exact same planning um, that I've used since I've arrived here in 2018, that we have the resources here to protect citizens from any internal or external harms that may come their way. So what the, the better question should be is, did we have the right resources here to allow individuals to really express their First Amendment rights and to be heard, right? Or are we interested in detracting from that by asking, what did the blue uniform look like? Um, and for me, um, any resource that I can bring in um, that is the right resource that protects this community from any ills and harms, um, we will bring in those resources. We are getting flooded with some questions, so I'm actually going to just go through them. Dr. Eo, uh, he says, similar to Kurt Scott, any idea of the faith or religious makeup of the Seville police? Um, I would not be permitted to ask that. Um, if you, that is extremely discriminatory, um, and their faith um, should not be the prerequisite as to what as to their profession. What is a prerequisite for me, as I say to every one of the, the new persons that we hire, are we character aligned? Is their character, their values, their morals, are they vision aligned um, with where we're going here in Charlottesville? And if it is not, it easily becomes apparent because they don't stay within an organization. Most people don't stay within an organization which they're not, not aligned. Um, you don't go to people's homes where you don't feel welcome, right? You go to a place or you go to a home where you have similar values, similar vision, and where you want to spend time. Mm. Um, and we are extremely clear here. My um, philosophies are extremely clear, um, and I'm extremely outspoken about these issues. And and I imagine, because I know you're a consumer of research and 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 literature related to this. And so Kate Kaufman Sylvester's question uh, is specific to that. She says, what are your go-to books, news sources, research, et cetera, to gain clarity and learn about how to understand the historical roots of unjust laws and their effects? So there's, um, there's quite a few. And as you know, um, this is my husband's area of expertise, right? <laughs> On slavery and lynching. Um, but some of my go-to sources when we talk about any of these. And part of the, the go-to sources that I teach um, in the course that I teach um, for Carnegie Mellon, my staple is Michelle Alexander's New Jim Crow. That's a staple. I, my staple is white rage. The other one is brown is the new white. I mean, so it really talks historically about how policies have influenced policing, but also how government 
um, has extended its arm into local community and, and things of that nature. Um, I just recently was put into contact um, with quite a few people, um, even Angela Davis, right? I am not afraid to have those conversations. I'm in conversation um, with a spoken word and rap artist, Prince EA, and he has just put on a video that says why this will still keep happening in 2020. Um, so there is a lot of research and, you know, and I still read all of my stuff on SAGE research, you know, they, every day new articles come in and talk about violence, resiliency, and how you change this. But if you even want to talk scholarly, um, these things all came about because we deconstructed what society looks like. Um, and Samson is a really good scholar on um, social disorganization and how we've taken away all of those institutional supports. And then we're surprised about when people organically create social systems within their own community because mm -hmm. they don't have those structures. And that's extremely intentional. And it's not just policing, it's economics, it's education, it's retail, it's health, it's food insecurity. It's all of those issues that start to play into um, how, we, um, how we address our societal ills. So those are some of my go-to. Um, and if you always wanna talk about leading edge, um, the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights, um, they have an education um, section as well. Stay in those kinds of um, not-for-profits who are often doing the research. We have a couple of comments that I'm going to read. Uh, one is from Nathan Swanson, who says, my daughter's excited to see a female chief of police. Thank you for your fantastic godly role model. <clears throat> Jamie Hawkins says, speak. Um, and James Chang, so he has kind of a two-part question, Dr. Brackney. Um, first is, how do you balance the need for accountability of police officers to the community with the police officers' need for loyalty and trust amongst themselves? And I think this is going back to something you alluded to earlier. Um, and how can accountability be fostered to where officers are willing to change, correct, and improve themselves and the community? How can trust be maintained? That was a three-part question. <laughs> uh, so balance, how do you balance the need for accountability of police officers to the community with the police officers' need for loyalty and trust amongst themselves? And how can that accountability be fostered where officers are willing to change, correct, and improve themselves in their community? So I think the first thing we have to do is break down the fact that these things are not mutually exclusive, right? They're not competing mm -hmm. priorities. You don't have to have one that's pitted against the other, right? And the us versus them kind of mindset has been a mindset that has been indoctrinated into the police culture for as long as I can remember. But also too, the community has a lot of that too, and not isn't because it isn't justified, right? It really has felt like it has been under attack um, by a system, by government, um, in which I have said, which there was a social contract that we typically in law enforcement broke. And when you break a social contract, much like a contract that you have, you know, when the tree fell and you had to possibly get your, your roof repaired, right? If the, the roofer had not lived up his end of the contract, what would you do to make that right? You're gonna make phone calls. You're gonna go ask to speak to their supervisor. You may get an attorney, et cetera. Well, that's exactly what the community is now saying to police. You broke that contract and now we're gonna hold you accountable, right? And the way we do that is through our voices, through our voting, we're asking for laws to be defunded. When you talk about loyalty within any culture or any community, 
um, that starts from the top down. You need to have the right leaders in place. Um, and they have to be committed to this work. This work is not for the faint of heart. It is not for people who are easily weary. Um, and it also is not the moment um, for the conversations to be co-opted um, um, around what we're really attempting to do. And part of that co-opting often occurs because these are just um, quick news cycles, um, quick moments, and then people think that it'll go away. Changing a culture, just like changing any habit takes years and decades. Mm. Um, so you have to either reconstruct the entire process, much like you reconstruct your home, right? When you're remodeling, you've got to knock some walls down. You've got to change it and get down to the bare bones and make sure that those bare bones structures are the one that society wants. Dr. Brackney, we have a lot of questions that are not going to get covered in a minute. So I'm going to do my best. Have to, one minute? <laughs> yeah, like one minute. But I'm going to try to combine them and, and, and maybe close in some ways that will, will, well, I don't think there's any summarizing what we've discussed because the conversation continues, but we'll do our best for sure. Um, so what, so I'm looking at some topics maybe we haven't covered yet. And this is one that we haven't really, in terms of hiring practices um, of, of officers with previous disciplinary actions. Um, and what use of force revisions are you considering to uh, Charlottesville Police Department's SOPs, if any? Okay, so um, actually we post all of our SOPs on our website and we've been doing that since January of this year. We post all of our use of force incidents for the last two years based on the summary of those use of force, the type of force they use, the race and gender of the officer and the race and gender of the subject in which that was done. So I am not afraid of transparency and those kinds of things um, that we, we do um, to make things different, particularly in this, this community. And what was the first part of that question? Because that was really quick. It was, and let me go back because I'm looking at some others. Uh, let's we see. already have duty to intervene as ours. We have duty oh. to report. Those are already in our policies. If they're looking for it, look under code of conduct for mm -hmm. our officers. We already have all of those that are out there. We don't do chokeholds. We don't teach any sort of neck restraints or unilateral neck restraints, bilateral neck restraints. All of those things are not part of our lesson plans platforms or the way in which we police. Um, and we very much engage in the um, eight can't wait campaign, the majority of which we already do. The, quest, the first part of it was hiring officers with previous uh, disciplinary actions. We don't. Um, we don't hire with previous disciplinary action. Um, and, and mine is that you want to recruit the best persons for this job. Um, we literally are trusted with someone's life. That is the, the, you know, that is literally the most responsible, uh, uh, that kind of power and responsibility has to come with accountability. Mm -hmm. So I do not hire um, with prior discipline um, and we research every record. We look at internal affairs records of individuals as well as um, any sort of um, record history that we have for their employment. And if we don't have those available and the person will not sign a release, they don't hire. Um, we also, when we, um, fire, we decertify. So it's not like they can move to another department. Um, any of our officers have been terminated, we decertify and we send that so that they are decertified in the Commonwealth of Virginia and cannot be a police officer. Uh, so 
Dr. Brackney, I'm going to not close with, but maybe this might be the second to last question. I'm going to try to put a few questions together here um, and, and maybe even add some of my own thoughts in it as well. When, when uh, we, we look at, say, why police may be sort of sent in somewhere, somebody references a Bible study on Thursday near the statues that police officers were called to, and somebody referenced yesterday, people were hesitant to show up because of a show of force that may have a chilling effect on speech, right? How, how do you, how do you, uh, what are the layers of decision-making that might inform such use uh, of people and as described as force, I'm not sure exactly what they're referencing there, but um, what goes to your mind when, when sending people out to these specific places and, and the effects that it might have, whether it's people being afraid to attend the block party or what, whatever might be the implications of that? So um, that's interesting because we've been having these rallies um, and marches now for about three weeks. Um, and pretty significantly here in Charlottesville, um, the first thing I always say is the, the less, we're less likely to have negative outcomes if there's no police intervention at all, right? So if you don't have interventions, no requirements for police to go in, the, less, the more likely you're to have a positive outcome around your events. So the first thing I do is think about how do we make sure that the police aren't needed to be called into a space? Um, and still provide protections, right? How will I balance your safety and security? And that still needs to be balanced um, with your abilities to express yourself. So that's part of what I go in. I also determine who is sent into those areas. I send typically officers on bicycles, um, segways, and those softer presence. So they're not a trigger or an adjutant or something of that nature. Um, we don't have a militarized police department here in Charlottesville. We don't accept any of the funds and have not participated in the militarization programs um, since it's, I believe it was 2008. We sent anything back as early as 2015 that they may have um, acquired under previous leadership. Um, but also too, um, it really is a balancing act um, of how I have to then layer protections so that I can make a nice area where people feel safe. Um, and there's also the, another thing that we need to consider here is the history because of 2017, people have a different lens about how they look at police interactions here. And I'm always being um, sensitive to what that lens may look like. Um, so it takes a lot of additional work. It takes a lot of additional thought, um, but it also takes um, a willingness to understand how a community needs and wants to be policed um, when I'm making those decisions. And I am extremely sensitive that this community has a saying, you know, we protect these streets. So I allow enough space for that to occur um, in their marches or rallies. And then the last thing is we, if we can close on it is language is important. I don't call these protests. I don't call them demonstrations. I don't say civil unrest because all of that language is often um, a force multiplier. People start to think about these as that we might need to use force to quell them. I call them rallies. I call them marches. I call them expressions of their First Amendment rights. And that reframes how you respond to them. And so that is um, how I've been approaching it so far. 
and, and to your point, language is powerful. And in listening to you, I appreciate the language that is being used in our city to, to speak to the pain, the very real pain that's being experienced across the country. And, and for those who may have just joined, uh, a large part of the purpose of having this conversation is to model, hopefully, for um, all of us, the kinds of conversations and transparency that can continue for our community to be the, the one that we want to have. There are questions that remain, but we are going to close questions like SROs and public schools. Thank you, Jay, for that. Not ignoring you, just running out of time. Questions about the Eight Can't Wait initiative, and maybe we can come back to this thread at some uh, later date. But um, I do want to pray before we close out. And uh, before doing so, are there ways that everyday citizens might participate well in pursuing justice, particularly as it relates to your industry? Um, you've already pointed us to some resources. What are some ways that, uh, as a community, we might participate well in that in that process of justice? So I think we the, the ways that, that you can communicate or that we can participate is reframe what community policing looks like, right? That really should not be sitting as a one-sided, one-dimensional proposition in which um, police have to do that. For me, community policing really means how does the community police itself so that they don't need to call in a formalized policing entity, right? Let's reshape and think about that conversation in a way. And what resources do you have in the community um, that may help you be successful? Um, so in Pittsburgh, I had, as community was extremely experienced a lot of violence, we talked about intergenerationally, how do we connect our young women with our more seasoned grandmoms, right? So that they can help with parenting and then then the younger folks were helping them with electronics. How do they use their smartphones so they can keep in contact, right? Um, how do we um, have social workers that are in the community who might do some of that um, work there? What does our counseling community look like? Our artists, are we teaching and engaging with our persons so that we're much more creative um, and then we use those intrinsic resources to divert individuals um, just like redirecting individuals from different pathways. And we haven't coalesced and pulled all those together in a real and genuine meaningful way. I see you wrapping up. Well, Dr. Brackney, I've held you over and I like to be pretty attentive to time. So I, I wanna just honor that and thank you for being here. And if you're joining us now, or, or maybe you were here from the beginning, I'd wanna remind all of us that this is being nested in uh, a sermon series on justice. Last week, we spoke from Psalm 89, verse 14, that says, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. And so as such, justice and righteousness um, are, are the foundation upon which our faith is built. Um, and we read earlier today, Dr. Brackney cited today, Isaiah 1 and 17, that talks about learning to do right. And so part of this conversation and next week is really about how we can continue to learn to do right, to seek justice, to defend the oppressed, to take up the cause of the fatherless and the widows and the orphans. And together we wanna to do that well as we bear with one another's burdens, mourn when, when we mourn with each other as we mourn, et cetera. So Dr. Brackney, thank you for uh, allowing us to have this conversation. Praying and we'll do so now for you and our community. God, thank you uh, for this community. Thank you for uh, your commitment to justice and your willingness to allow us, imperfect people, all of us to partner with the perfect God to, to seek justice here on the earth. And I pray that we all would participate well in seeing your will done on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, I pray for the wisdom and continued discernment 
on the part of Chief Brackney as she navigates her space, allow her to hear from you well, to serve, to, to, uh, uh, to steward, to lead, um, to engage in ways that honor you and worship you well. We love you, Lord, and thank you for this time today. Amen. Amen. Everybody who joined, thank you so much. Dr. Brackney, I owe you nine minutes. Thank you for us going over for a bit, but uh, appreciate you much and appreciate all of you and your questions as well. Thank you. Be healthy. Be well. Amen. Take care.